Let us pray. Good and gracious God, we give you thanks for this day, this opportunity to worship you once again in spirit and in truth. We thank you for the gift of each other, this assembly, the opportunity to share our lives with one another. We ask on this day especially uh, that you would grant us grace to always be mindful of our LGBTQ siblings, uh, to always defend them, speak up for them, advocate for them, uh, love them in a world that often does none of the above. We ask that you would give us a spirit of love, grace, and mercy in all things, with all people, and at all times. Our hearts are heavy in this nation this week with what we have seen and heard. We are amazed, actually, at our ability as humanity to be cruel to one another and to hate one another, to bludgeon one another, to kill one another. And yet here we are in worship, coming once again to seek you, the fountain of all grace and mercy and guidance in our lives. Uh, we are sorry for all the abuse of power, the acts of violence that we perpetrate against one another and now we focus not only on those most egregious aspects uh, that we can all witness on the news, but we turn the mirror on ourselves and we look inward into our own hearts. We ask that you would root up those places of judgment and criticism and anger and wrath. Uh, all those occasions when we speak harshly to one another, and think uncharitable thoughts of one another. We know that comes not from you, but from our own fallen sinful nature. So we ask that you would convert our hearts, that you would change us, that you would soften us, that you would grant us empathy and compassion for ourselves and for all other human beings. All this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. The sermon text for today is the Gospel lesson, Matthew chapter 5, verses 1 through 12. It's the very beginning of Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, what's known as the Beatitudes. My sermon title for today is Right Here, Right Now. Right Here, Right Now. These Beatitudes begin the first and greatest of five large discourses of Jesus found herein in Matthew's Gospel. Indeed, they begin Jesus' most famous sermon and teaching of all, namely the Sermon on the Mount. This sermon opens in verse number 1 with Jesus being portrayed as the new Moses, going up on a mountain and receiving God's word and will for God's people. Rather than going up Mount Sinai, however, and receiving the Ten Commandments, Jesus goes up an unnamed mountain in Galilee and proclaims the eight Beatitudes. Can you turn me down just a tad in the mic? I don't know if y'all, it just sounds like I'm a little loud. Don't turn me all the way down. I still want to be heard. <laughs> Thank you. These Beatitudes, so-called because they are blessings, serve to inaugurate the new age of God's kingdom that Jesus has come both to proclaim and to embody. When Jesus saw the crowds, verse 1 opens, He went up the mountain, again like a new and greater Moses, 
And after he sat down, a normal teaching position for a rabbi, his disciples came to him. Then he began to speak and taught them, saying, This sermon, which includes many of Jesus' most famous teachings, lasts three entire chapters and concludes at the very end of chapter 7 with this remark. Now when Jesus had finished all these sayings, the crowds were astonished at His teaching, for He taught them as one having authority, not as their scribes. Something about these words, you see, really resonates with the human condition. There's no real parallel text in either Mark or John's Gospel, but there is one in Luke's Gospel, in the sixth chapter therein. Therein it is referred to, ironically, as the Sermon on the Plain, since Jesus delivers it not from a mountain, but rather from a level place. Luke begins with a form or a version of these Beatitudes, but there are fewer of them, four rather than eight. They are differently ordered. They are personalized. Blessed are you poor, rather than Matthew's impersonalized, blessed are the poor. They are practical and concrete in Luke's gospel. Blessed are you poor. Blessed are you that hunger now. As opposed to Matthew's more spiritualized version. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. And there is also an accompanying and offsetting list of woes in Luke's version that Matthew lacks. Woe to you that are rich, full, laugh, etc. In an interesting and curious observation, someone once noticed the constant controversy and brouhaha surrounding attempts at posting the Ten Commandments in public places, but no one ever seems to attempt to post these eight Beatitudes, which can be viewed as the equivalent Christian teaching of the Jewish law. The opening words of Jesus, which constitute the Beatitudes, which began His Sermon on the Mount, and which effectively summarized the kingdom God desires, could not have more weight, gravity, and import. If you count the Beatitudes yourself, you may count nine rather than the traditional eight, based on the number of times Jesus begins a sentence with the word blessed. But most scholars and commentators take the ninth blessing, found in verses 11 and 12, to really be just an elaboration on the eighth blessing. In verse number 10, each of these eight Beatitudes or blessings could be an entire sermon unto itself. So today simply has to serve as a brief overview, a survey of sorts. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. That's a fascinating starting point, isn't it? If most of us were writing this today, we'd be tempted to proclaim, blessed are the rich in spirit, because we seek to be spiritually rich, filled, saturated. No one seeks to be spiritually poor, I don't think. My suspicion is that to be poor means that you lack something. So in order to receive Jesus or the blessings of God's kingdom, we must lack precisely those things. You must be empty at a certain level in order to be 
filled. In order, I think, for one to be made whole, one has to acknowledge truthfully exactly how broken one is. It is incumbent upon us to recognize our own spiritual poverty, emptiness, and sinfulness before we can truly receive and be filled with the goodness of God's abundance and meaning and forgiveness. Blessed are those who mourn, Jesus continues, for they will be comforted. To mourn is to lament, to be sorrowful, to be in great pain or anguish, to experience loss or grief. It is a horrible place to be when life is devoid of joy. Jesus promises here a future reversal of such a sad situation. He will take a person or a situation which is inconsolable and heal it. Of our various enemies in this life, the Bible testifies that the last enemy to be destroyed is death. And that one day, through Jesus Christ, death will be swallowed up in victory Every tear will be wiped away. Death will lose its victory. Death will give up its sting, which seems so powerful right now. And oh, what a great day that will be. Blessed are the meek, he states, for they shall inherit the earth. The meek are those who are humble, who, as Scripture says, count others more worthy than themselves. They are quiet, lowly, unassuming, often overlooked, flying under the radar screen. They don't start stuff. They don't stir the pot. They are not doormats, however, lacking in self-worth or self-esteem, but they have an honest assessment of the bigger picture and their place in the overall scheme of things. Among all of Jesus' counterintuitive and countercultural teachings, this one may be the most difficult to heed or achieve since the world and society tend to operate based on the law of the jungle where only the strong survive. So it is critical for us as Christians to perhaps redefine strength taking into account God's desire that we be meek. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. We hunger and thirst for many, many things in this life, my friends. But is righteousness among them? We hunger and thirst for love and acceptance, for meaning and significance, for success and acclaim, for wealth and possessions, for happiness and contentment, for security and stability, for popularity and fame. But how about righteousness? Being fundamentally in right relationship with the God of the universe who created us in God's own image and after God's own likeness and called us according to God's good purpose. 
Blessed are the merciful, for they will receive mercy. In this instance, and in a good way, you reap what you sow. What comes around, goes around. That's what the Lord's prayer encourages when we pray, forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. Parable after parable, teaching after teaching, encourages us to exhibit mercy to other people, not in theory. So we ourselves have constantly, as we ourselves, have constantly been recipients of God's mercy. Would others say about you that you are merciful in your dealings with others? Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Purity here means freedom from mixed motives. Having no hidden agenda. Not two-faced. Those who are pure in heart have a single solitary focus. How can I show love? How can I be faithful? How can I serve God and others? They seem to have a fundamental orientation towards love and holiness and other human beings. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called children of God. Children of God here are defined as those who make peace. That is unity, harmony, Oneness, wholeness, togetherness, fellowship. The opposite, of course, is strife, contention, division, separation, violence. When Paul later admonishes the Corinthians for disorder in worship and in their communal life together, he writes, For God is not a God of confusion, but a God of peace. Are you a peacemaker? Is that how those who know you best would describe you? Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. The remaining verses, again, simply elaborate on this last beatitude. Blessed are you when people revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil falsely against you on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Just as these verses are a cautionary corrective on the human desire to be liked and accepted, oftentimes sidestepping justice in order to be popular, they also serve as an amendment to those who take perverse pride in persecution. The persecution herein is for righteousness' sake. 
and on Jesus' account. Not for personal reasons, having more to do with pride and ego. As always, we allow the total scriptural word to challenge us. Are we, as a congregation and as individuals, poor in spirit, mournful, meek, hungering and thirsting for righteousness, merciful, pure in heart, peacemakers, persecuted for righteousness' sake? Would others experience us as such and describe us thusly? Or are we short-tempered, quick to yell and be angry, self-centered and uncooperative, judgmental, thinking that we know best. If you're anything like me, you may know in your conscience where you seem to match up well on this list, and also perhaps where you are challenged to grow in integrity. It has been said very accurately, I think, that the gospel message in total afflicts the comfortable and comforts the afflicted. Allow me to say that again. The gospel of Jesus Christ afflicts the comfortable and comforts the afflicted. Perhaps nowhere is that more true than in these opening eight Beatitudes. In your affliction, allow them to comfort you. But in your comfort, allow them to challenge you, to shake things up, if not outright afflict you. But know that all of the above is done within the context and in the reality of your free salvation, entire forgiveness, redemption, and unconditional and eternal love that God has for you through God's Son, Jesus Christ. Lastly, I would like to call your attention to the bookends of these Beatitudes, Numbers 1 and 8, respectively, found in verses 3 and 10. Notice, if you will, two things. First, unlike the intermediate ones, they conclude the same way. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Everything in between has a different outcome or reward or consequence, if you will. But they are bookended, they are bracketed by, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Secondly, and very tellingly, I might add, the verb tenses are different in the middle six Beatitudes than in the surrounding two bookends. In the middle six, the verb tenses are all future, indicating their bestowal, their fulfillment in a time yet to come will be comforted, will inherit the earth, will be filled, will receive mercy, will see God, will be called children of God. In other words, all the pain you are enduring right now in your life will be ended one day. 
all the trying to do the right things, all the trying to live the right way, will be vindicated one day. It will all have been worth it one day in an as yet unrealized future. And that's comforting, that's reassuring, because that's part of God's sure and certain promises. But it's also important to note that the bookends of verses 3 and 10, Beatitudes numbers 1 and 8, that bracket the whole thing are not in the future tense, but rather in the present. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. For ours is the kingdom of heaven. Do you understand what that means, my friends? God's kingdom is not only in the future, it's also in the present. It's not only by and by, it's also here and now. It's not only pie in the sky, but it's also that sweet slice of pie that you will eat for dessert later on today as you break bread with your family. The same Jesus that said there will be wars and rumors of wars, earthquakes and famines, distress to herald God's incoming kingdom in the last days, in the future, is the same Jesus that said in another place the kingdom of God is not coming with signs to be observed, but rather the kingdom of God is in the very midst of you. So it's not a matter of either or, but both and. The kingdom of God is not future or present. It's both future and present. We tend to emphasize the future unrealized facets of God's kingdom. But Jesus in the Beatitudes surrounds and brackets the future facets with the present reality, for yours is the kingdom of heaven. The kingdom of heaven consists of the air you're breathing and the blood that's circulating inside you right now. It consists in the fact that God is providing enough food, water, clothing, and shelter in your life right now. It consists of the fact that you are sitting beside someone right now who loves you very much and who cares for you and wants more than anything for you to be well and may even give their life for yours if given that chance. Oh, Jesus has promised us that wherever two or three are gathered in His name, there He is in the midst of them. And we have many times those numbers in here this morning, my friends. So we have an overabundance, an embarrassment of riches of God's Spirit and God's presence and God's peace right now. Despite your pain and struggles and suffering that may only fully be healed one day in the future, yours is the kingdom of heaven right here, right now. You are blessed right here, right now. You are loved right here, right now. You are anointed of the Holy Spirit right here, right now. You are accepted for who you are, forgiven all your flaws right here, right now. You are loved and supported and encouraged and cherished and valued by your siblings in Christ in this very place right here and right now. Take heart. Be encouraged, be strengthened, for you are blessed right here, right now. And yours will be the kingdom of heaven one day. And it already is right here, right now. Blessed are you. Joel and Susan and Ilsa, for yours is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you, Walt and Karen, Inga, Debbie, Ed, for yours is the kingdom of heaven. 